and I'm sure, because it's not even time yet for it to start. Yeah, if you if you want to wait for every you know more people to get here, that's fine. It's about five minutes before nine. So. Well, no, this is something that anybody can catch in on. We can start with the uh, let let us say that we can go to the very bottom issue, mm-hmm. and that is is that it's not death itself. The problem is the knowledge of death that uh, and what i mean by the knowledge of death is is that there are a whole lot of animals in the animal kingdom like uh uh dogs now maybe domesticated dogs know a little bit more but a dog in the wild will go uh let us say it will sniff a dead dog's carcass and just move on without connecting the dots of putting it together that I too shall die. But humans have put that connection together and that uh, just for for one thing that's really important is, is that we have built into the DNA survival mechanisms. uh, instinctual mechanisms to stay alive because any particular species or group of animals that has no fear at all will be eaten. In other right. words, uh, the lion comes and the giraffe looks at him and the lion jumps on the uh, giraffe's back and the giraffe says hello and then the uh, the lion bits uh, into the giraffe's neck and the giraffe says, you know, and dies. No, that doesn't happen. When the giraffe sees the lions, it makes a run for it. But I've even seen videos where there was one lion on each of the back hind legs and a, uh, a lion on the back of the giraffe and still the giraffe was walking, getting out of there. Okay, so there is a mechanism built into all of the species about imminent danger and imminent death. Okay, the problem with the humans is is that we have knowledge of that death, and so just by having thoughts about death will put us into that mechanism of fear and survival. Okay. That in fact, when people are insulted, they feel that they have been attacked. And so that survival mechanism kicks in the gear just because of some words that are being said. So it's the same um, in, in that regard that what, what that means then is, is that humans have intellectualized death without dealing with the underlying feelings and emotions that have to do with survival and death and all of that. And so uh, we tend to to hide it in our culture. Uh, We have always hidden it in our culture. Um, Just just like um, let's say a dead dog carcass does not collect dogs around it. 
that everybody, all the dogs want to leave a dog carcass. Uh, just as that's true also with humans uh, in, a, in a much bigger way. So in fact, one of the things that they have understood about human civilization is, uh, let's say the archeologist, the most likely thing for the archeologist to find are things that are uh, uh, associated with burial and death of humans. Uh, which means then that it's only because great care was taken for those bodies that if the if the, uh, the humans treated their dead the way the dogs treated their dead, then there would be no Kupnatam and there would be probably no pyramids. They would be, in fact, many, many things, perhaps even no religion. There's, there's one uh, civilization that I know of that's up, to, up in the Mekong uh, Delta area of Thailand. It's a World Heritage Site now that they only discovered in the 1970s and 80s. That's a civilization that's about 8,000 years old. And that the reason why there was no remains of this left was because of the... Um, the topology of the land and the flooding and all of that. So any buildings were there, but where they found what the, uh, the archaeological evidence was on the high ground in that area, which was where down about 20 or 30 feet down was where they found huge amount of remains uh, that go from 7,000 down to about 2000 BC or about, let's say, uh, yeah, Right, I made I made the mistake when I said seven thousand years ago. Actually, it was nine thousand years ago, seven thousand BC. So that's the, that's the age of that civilization, and to take recent pottery of the to the age of the grave. In other words, the graves in very early times very simple, and as the civilization grew. The pottery and all of the uh, accoutrements uh, associated with burial were. Um, uh, Chris, can you turn your microphone off? I think that there is a uh, uh, a noise there. Yes. Okay. Your microphone was was quite noisy, so uh, we'll leave it that way for a moment. If you have something to say, please turn it off. So anyway, the um, the civilizations of humanity. A great deal of our time and effort have to do with the disposal of the dead. That in fact, it's gotten to the point now that very few people die where other people see them unless you're in the business of that. So hospitals and mortuaries and uh, hospices tend to do all the dirty work of our society. Um, and uh, we try to, uh, let us say, stay away from it because we don't want to deal with it. That in fact, the two kinds of feelings that come up when association with death is either the grief over the loss of someone dear or fear of one's own death. That being around dead bodies reminds us of our own body. That uh, in fact, one of the uh, uh, issues about autopsies is, is that this, the medical students who do their first autopsy generally either heave or pass out. 
because of the identification that we do. Uh, we, we go to, we get uh, associated with that body. I see the human body being cut open, and so I am the body. And that that's one of the important things that medical people have to deal with is, is that they have to, if, if I'm going to be a doctor setting an arm, I have to not have, be that arm. Right, that can't be my arm that I'm stretching out. I've got to disassociate myself with it. Okay, so that's one of the things that happened in the autopsy is the students have to disassociate themselves with that dead one. So it's our associations then uh, that cause grief. But in the, in that sense, um, even though in the autopsy, the people don't know the person who's dead, and therefore are not dealing with grief. They're dealing with a different kind of grief, not, not personal, but in the sense of the grief of the lost and that each one of us feel that also. We don't like death. That in fact, almost the worst things that we can talk about have to do with death or the associations of death, harming someone, killing them, Okay, that when people get angry at each other, they want to bring on death because it's almost like that's the worst thing that can happen is dying. Would you agree with that? Uh, I agree, yeah. Yeah, death's the worst thing that can happen to you. Well, if death's the worst thing that can happen to you and you can get over your own fear of death, then nothing bad can happen to you because of the worst thing that can happen to you is not going to bother you. Yeah, so the well, I guess the issue I have with that is it seems to go towards like uh, it feels like it moves towards like a nihilism type of thing. Like if I don't care about death, then you know, then you're I don't know. It, 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 it feels weird. Well, <laughs> Okay, what you have just done is you have gone from one extreme to the other. Okay. You have jumped a major continent when all we wanted to do was take a dip in the ocean. <laughs> Something in between. So, on, on one hand, that uh, in fact the place that you're talking about is so extreme that no one ever can go there. But there are people who are afraid of saying, well, that's my only option. Therefore, uh, hang on a second. Someone is joining the call. Well, hello, Andrew. Well, hi there. We were just beginning to discuss the issue of death. This is Christopher. Hey, Christopher. Hi, Andrew. Where Good are you living? Because we're uh, here a bit of information about each other. Oh, I'm in uh, I'm in Ohio. A um, little bit. I'm actually in between Cleveland and Toledo. 
Hello, Jeff. Welcome. Hi, Colorado. How are you? Everything's fine. Everything beautiful. The yard is now flooded. We have had oh. several days of rain that, in fact, November tends to historically be the rainy yeah. season. So I imagine that all of the boat traffic, including the ferries and the high-speed catamarans and all of that, are grounded today because of high seas. Nice, quiet day. So uh, Christopher and I had just been uh, talking about death. And that uh, he was asking the question, and I would go to far to say that the worst thing that can happen to someone is to be dead, to die. And that when there is conflict and anger and real hostility, the worst thing that an enemy can do to someone is to kill him. Right. And so this is kind of a well-known, well-understood issue that death's the worst thing that can happen. And also we have knowledge of death, which means that just thinking about death is thinking about the worst thing that can happen. So actually thinking about death could also be considered in the, the Buddhist context as the most unwholesome thing that we could do. That in fact, in the very, very early days of the teachings of the Buddha, bye, hi, Keyshawn, glad to see you come on. Hey, Damrado, glad to be here. <laughs> so, uh, we're talking about death. And early days of the time of the Buddha, um, he had them go to do charnel ground meditation you could call it a meditation because that's in fact what it was now the charnel ground was basically the city dump of ancient days that we would now call a cemetery except that they didn't bother to bury the bodies that in fact many of them were just laid out in great finery and uh all of that and just left in the charnel ground which means that animals would come and ravage and whatnot like that. And so uh, there is actually 10 stages of decay of a human body uh, that starts with rigor mortis and then bloating and then uh, breakage of the skin and bursting out and uh, decomposition, uh, bones beginning to show uh a, a bit of meat left on the bones but it's still a skeleton down to this there's uh only bones left down to now the bones get scattered so these are the various uh things and there is one sutta about what happened was is that the buddha went uh out to another village or something and came back to this place and asked What's happened? Where are all the monks? And they said that a lot of them had actually killed themselves, that they had gone too much into that meditation. And so the Buddha uh, stopped doing that, even though it's still in uh, these 10 uh, uh, degradations of the human body while it's uh, lying uh, in the charnel ground. Is one of the 40 meditations. That, are, that is listed. And these 40 meditations are listed in uh, the literature like the Vasudhimaga that comes about a thousand years after the Buddha. 
that in fact, Bhikkhu Buddhadasa has made the point that no, that the Buddha really only taught one practice, and that was Anapanasati. That may he may have been um, experimenting, but the whole point about being there with the corpse is uh, becoming kind of fearless. That in fact, one of the old jokes and has been for a long time is the idea of the teenagers or whatever uh, spend the night in the cemetery. Or, or whatever like that, because the cemetery is supposed to be dangerous at night. And so here you have the monks who are able to sit in the um, charnel ground with not just cemetery where all the bodies are, you know, buried under the ground six feet, but they're just laying around stinky and all. Uh, and so the Buddha stopped doing those kind of meditations because they didn't they didn't work. And um, uh, came to a more uh, sophisticated method. But the entire intention of that was to recognize dukkha in the sense of old age, sickness, and death. And death is like the worst thing that can happen. But old age and sickness go along with death in the sense that they're kind of the preparation. But one could take a different point of view, a more wholesome point of view, and say getting old and getting sick is a very good thing. Why is getting old and getting sick a very good thing? It's because your only option is to be dead. And as long as you're old and sick, you're not dead. And so that's the blessing. Because some people don't get old and they don't get sick because they got dead really soon. So if that's the case, then that means that each one of us can not only plan in advance, plan wisely, for our old age, our sickness, and our eventual death. That those things are going to happen. The question is, are you ready for that? Because our society uh, actually congratulates youth. We, we want the new thing. Nobody wants to go old. That are, that are in fact, um, quite a lot of research and things like this. Uh, they, one thing is cryogenics of freezing bodies so that they could be brought back alive at a later time. All right. <clears throat> and there's also uh, longevity pills and fountains of youth and all of this kind of stuff because of people in general being afraid of death getting old, getting sick, and dying. And um, the, the, the further opposite of that would be the concept, and it's merely a concept of the vampire, the one who cannot die, but he gets in a great state of deprivation. In other words, we get really, really old, really, really sick. We can't get any blood. We can't get no juice. We can't get no satisfaction. But we still have to put up with can't get no satisfaction. We can't end it in death. And a lot of people feel that way in their own lives. You can call that instead of calling it a vampire, you can call it depression. Where people feel like if they can't get any satisfaction, this is going nowhere. Um, I can't get out of it. Well, there's always a way out. 
In fact, there's a whole set of degrees of the way out. One of the ways out is by dying. That's, that's the way out. Now, uh, a lot of religions want to say, oh, no, that's not a way out. That if you think you've got it bad now, just commit suicide and watch what bad happens to you. You can't get out of it. That's the story of uh, the religions is that you can't get out. The worst case of you can't get out would then be called the dark night of the soul. The idea that you can't get out of it. You're stuck. You're stuck in misery. You're stuck in suffering for the rest of your life and beyond that. That in fact, there's no end to it. And you will be suffering forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. This is a major teaching in human society. All due to the fact that people are afraid of dying. And so other people can, um, how to say it, capitalize on that. Now, one of the problems with, with the the issue of, of death is, is that because we're all so afraid of it, that we don't deal with it. And because of that, not dealing with it, we remain afraid. If we're afraid of dying, that means that we're afraid also of living. If you can come to the point of not being afraid of dying, then you can live happily and joyfully. Because it's all going to end anyway, wouldn't you? Whether it end happily or end uh, joyfully, or would you rather it end uh, miserably after a long, 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 long uh, time of misery? That seems to be our choices. So long as we're afraid of death, we're going to be afraid. So this means that one of the things that we can begin to practice is to deal directly with the feelings of fear. To start understanding them, start recognizing fear when it comes up. But also more than that, understand that we can soothe that fear, that we can recognize that in fact, generally there is no danger. That we can become fearless in the face of danger only when we can become fearless in the face of no danger. And yet we go around in the face of no danger most of the time, and yet we still have to fear, deal with fear. And fear is nothing but a survival mechanism. In almost always, we're not really at the level of it being an issue of survival. That right now, I can, I can pretty well understand that none of you have any alligators in the room that you're in. That's not a danger. And yet everybody right now is thinking about alligators. So if we think about alligators, that means that we're actually creating alligators and then we're creating the fear of alligators. But when we go to the point of there are no alligators, there's no alligators here, which means I can relax. There's no dangers. This is one of the practices that we have to have in the sense of coming out of unwholesome thoughts and starting having wholesome thoughts. The wholesome thoughts in this moment of right now, there's no danger. Right now, there's no fear. 
let me find a place where I can come to that I can finally feel comfortable. Because all of us have spent most of our lives in either subliminal fear, let us say somewhere on a scale from two up to about eight or nine back and forth and only occasionally going up to a nine or ten, but almost never it goes below a two. Never goes down to zero. So one of the things that we're going to practice with Anapanasati is, well, how low can we go in the amount of adrenaline that we pump into the body? Can we actually completely relax? Well, in order to do that, we actually need to be safe. We cannot practice being absolutely completely comfortable and safe while we're standing in the middle of a freeway. Just can't do it. This is the whole point about getting into seclusion, is to getting ourselves into literally a place where we feel safe. If we can get ourselves into a place of feeling safe, the Buddha says, go to the forest, the foot of a tree, go to an empty hut or a pile of straw, make yourself comfortable so that you can get out and start dealing with this underlying fear that humans have that comes from the death, that comes from the knowledge of death. And not only the knowledge of death, but all the signs of death and all the things that we've been doing to avoid death. And so we recognize that we are going to die. And that's okay. I can do that. I can handle that. If I can get myself into feeling really, really good, then I can start introducing small things that would make me feel afraid. And then I can deal with that. An example of that, by the way, is the way that psychiatrists for traditionally have handled things like um, phobias. I forget the name of it, but one of them is the fear of uh, spiders. Does anybody know the, the name of there's a particular phobia uh, for, for spiders? Huh? Arachnophobia. Yes, that's the one I was thinking about, but uh, I was considering it maybe that's the fear of open spaces. But anyway, um, the uh, the psychiatrist will very, very slowly, very tenderly talk about uh, spiders for a little bit just to get the person starting to talk about spiders. And then the psychiatrist will say, well, you know, I have a friend who has a spider. That'll terrify them, but they'll get a little bit, you know, used to that. And then they'll say, well, you know, I've got that spider. It's in the room here. And now they all really freak out. And then he'll say, uh, uh, it's actually just a plastic spider. But then the relief. Then he says, you want to see it? And now the terror comes back up. So basically what we want to do is to get the person to see a plastic spider. And then maybe even get close enough to it that they can touch it, knowing that it's a plastic spider. Right? This is the whole point about that people become afraid of things. And we all become afraid of things. So the question is, what are you afraid of other than death itself? Because, in fact, why should anybody be afraid of a spider other than the fact that the spider might harm you? If the spider can't harm you, 
then there's no danger. That in fact, even a piece of paper cannot harm you. Right? Would all of you agree that a piece of paper cannot harm you? What if that piece of paper is a subpoena? What about that piece of paper is a bill uh, uh, coming from the hospital that you can't pay? Okay, then how do you feel? But it's still just a piece of paper. Why would that piece of paper terrify someone? Well, the answer is, is because the thoughts that come with that piece of paper. But in fact, there's no real danger in that piece of paper. And so this is where we have to begin practicing with Anapanasati is determine the difference between what's real and what's not real. That that's merely just a piece of paper. It's not real danger. And that right now, you don't have to feel afraid of, about it because right now I'm not going to pay that IRS bill or right now I don't have to go to court. There's no reason to feel afraid now but when we get those pieces of paper, we feel immediately terrified. We go into a state of anxiety. You probably had that happen before. Probably numbers of times. Why do we have those kinds of reactions of terror and fear over something that the reality of, of it is is that it is not dangerous? Just a piece of paper. Or how about someone insults you? Maybe they're, in fact, they want to insult you, so they find something about you that you would be tender at, and they poke you there. And so how do you feel when they uh, uh, insult? Because the insult is just like a piece of paper. It's not really dangerous. But we bring up that self-preservation instinct because we see dangers where there are, in fact, no dangers. And so um, what we can do, in fact, is we, through wisdom, we begin to see what is really dangerous and what is not dangerous. And so seeing danger where there is no danger is actually dangerous. An example of that is you think that there's a bear chasing you and you run into a tree. Well, it's pretty dangerous to run out at night running away from something you don't even know is there. But that's the way that we have to deal with fear then is to start practicing through Anapanasati. And practicing, having wholesome thoughts, practicing to come out of our fears, practicing to see fear when it does arise wherever you are. Especially when you're practicing alone and away from others, but that's, that's normally when the fear goes down to about a two or a three. But if we can practice saying bringing the fear down to where we can really relax and say, wow, I am just so pleased to just, I got nothing. And when you get that kind of feeling, you'll know that you can bring your fear down to about a zero. It doesn't stay there, but you can from time to time, you can bring it down and get it to the point that you feel really, really relaxed. This is no problem at all. There's no pieces of paper. There's no subpoenas. There is no hospital bills. There is no IRS. And we can feel safe finally. 
But we never do practice it that way. We can always keep thinking about practicing in the way of looking for dangers so we can avoid the dangers. But there were never dangers to avoid anyway. But here we are spending all of our time avoiding dangers, trying to deal with our fear by avoiding the dangers and whatnot, rather than dealing with the fear itself directly. By looking at it, recognizing that our thoughts cause the fear, so that we can come to the point of feeling completely okay. And when you get to that point, when you recognize that you're not going to be afraid of anything, that's the time to go take your pup tent and spend the night in the cemetery. Check it out. <laughs> See if you can spend the night with the dead without being afraid at all. So we do have to test because there's going to be times when, when life itself is going to test us. That in fact, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa makes a big point over and over again of making illness an opportunity for practice. Because when we are sick, that's a time that we feel afraid. But in fact, if you've got a back pain and a back pain day after day after day of the back pain, then you'll say, maybe I've got to go to the hospital. I might have kidney problems. And if I don't get it taken care of, I'm going to what die. It all has to do around the fear of death. And so when you when you check out that, in fact, there is nothing to be afraid of, you can actually practice being the state of feeling safe and secure. Now, um, the Pali word for this is baya for fear and abaya for uh, not fear. But unfortunately, the translators translated this not fear into uh, fearlessness. But the word fearlessness has a different kind of connotation than what we're talking about. And generally, fearlessness actually means courage. Or the other possibility is that it means stupid. Okay, stupid in the sense of uh, going where angels fear to tread because we actually need fear. It's kept our civilization is kept in each individual alive. All five of us would have already been dead if we had been born fearless. We would have walked right out on the road, not caring about the traffic and other things like this. So there's no way that we could have uh, survived without being afraid. So most of the fear is actually a false positive. We bring up fear and react to fear when in fact there's nothing to be afraid of. So the balance then would be, is to be afraid of the things that are worth being afraid of and not being afraid of the things that are not dangerous. And one of the things absolutely for sure is not dangerous is dying. Because once that happens and you're dead, you're really at peace. There's nothing left after that. I mean, it's just kind of marvelous to be dead. The Buddha makes a point of that. There's actually in the uh, uh, the chant or the funeral chants that are used. Anicca Wata Sankara Upatta Vayudamano Jesa Nupasana. Let's see. It ends in the word Sukho. And the word Sukho means happiness or Sukha. This is exactly what we're practicing in Anapanasati, is that safety, security, peace, 
discomfort. And that only really, really happens finally once you're dead. Once you're dead, you are absolutely can rest in peace. There's nothing to fear after you're dead. It's already happened. So in that way, there's, there's no problem with being dead. The problem is not being dead. The problem is, what do we do with our time between now and when that happens? So this is a way that we can begin to understand that death is really not fearful. That what really is fear is the self-preservation mechanism that's built into the DNA. It's a, um, uh, an instinct. But what we can do is we can operate through wisdom instead. In other words, when we can see in advance what is dangerous, then we can avoid it in advance without having, ever having to feel fear. So an example of that would be when the, uh, the, the bill comes on that piece of paper. I don't have to feel guilty or sad or afraid about that. I'll just pay for it when it's time to pay it. Or not. But how I feel is not the same thing as whether I do it or not. So we're beginning to look at that it has nothing to do with what we do or what actions we take. It has to do with how we feel and that we can manage our feelings wisely by seeing in advance what needs to be done so that we don't wind up in dangerous situations that need to be fearful. So this word fearlessness can actually be understood better to uh, the state that we're looking for would be wise security, wise safety. You get yourself into a state where you know that you're safe and now practice feeling really safe. Let's see if we can get that fear level all the way down to zero so that there's nothing left. And we can feel really, really safe and secure and comfortable. And that doesn't mean that we're going to live forever. We don't even want to live forever. There always comes a time that, in fact, most people kind of deal with this. It's an issue of old age when we recognize that the body is wearing out, can't do what we used to do, that life is coming to an end. And if we are wise, we can accept that process, that it will happen. And we can accept it wisely. Or if we're afraid of death, we can go into our old age miserable. But in fact, it's very interesting. I'm, uh, a good story about this is my, my grandmother, who died at the age of 101 in the year 2001. And that uh, she was deathly afraid of death. She didn't want to die, even though she'd spent half her life inside a Baptist church. But she hadn't been to church in about 30 years. And so she was feeling guilty. And everybody kept telling her, hey, man, you've got a great big mansion waiting for you in heaven. Why are you worried? But she did. She was worried and worried and worried and worried. And I recommend to each one of you, don't worry yourself to death, even if you're 101 years old when you do it. Because that's what she did. She worried herself to death 
because she was deathly afraid of not going to heaven. And so we can, in fact, now begin to come out of those fears by investigating them, by recognizing what is it that causes your fear. Now, uh, when I say fear uh, at a level of one, two, or three, I would say that anxiety is somewhere between a three and a four, maybe a five, when you feel tense, uptight. And that many people, when they practice meditation, that's one of the first thing that they notice is, is that I don't feel secure. I don't feel okay. I feel anxious. I need to go do something. And so the, this fear that we have, we recognize that it actually drives our behavior. We go around preparing for things that might happen. We go around preventing dangers, et cetera, like that, because we feel that anxiety. So we're trying to get rid of the anxiety by going and doing whatever we were thinking about, but that doesn't get rid of the anxiety. We need to actually deal with the anxiety directly. Breathing into it, helping ourselves to relax, having wholesome thoughts, feelings of safety and security so that we can come out of those feelings of fear uh, and um, stress, uh, anxiety, that we can actually feel comfortable. And so thinking about one's death, in fact, thinking about, there's two ways to do it. Thinking about what would this body of mine be like after it's dead? What do we want with it? We want the fire, we want the, uh, uh, the, the uh, vultures, you want it at burial at sea. And for me, I've decided that I want it to be this body you can drop out at the back door of one of the Chinese restaurants in Bangkok. They'll probably pay about $2 a pound. <laughs> They'll make soup. Wonton. <laughs> Maybe Dama <Wow>. drop soup. <laughs> Would they call that for Tong? Yes. Wrong <laughs> time. <laughs> and so we can also think about what well, how are you going to die? Because there's a variety of ways. I mean, it can be old age or sickness, or we can get stabbed, we can get shot and get poisoned. We can have a car accident. What would be your favorite way of going out? But you have a choice, you know. So think about how you would go out. How would you how would you say goodbye? What would be the last words that you would say? Would you give the world a goodbye kiss? Would you say goodbye, cruel world, as you flush yourself down the toilet? I've seen that. <laughs> That's an old joke. <laughs> or actually a drawing I saw when I was a kid. So how is it going to happen? Because we can actually start to think about this, to start playing with it in the sense of recognizing that these thoughts do not have to be fearful. They can be genuinely joyful. It's going to happen. You might as well get used to the fact that it is going to happen. 
so that's the actual answer then to this question of, well, why is death important? It's because the fear of death drives most of our human behavior. And if you were not afraid of death, a lot of the stuff that you do now, you wouldn't bother to do. So you could sit down and take it easy. Rather than being driven around by our tension and our anxiety, and we're trying to escape from that tension and anxiety, but we never manage to escape from it. We just keep being driven by it. So. I remember uh, one time you said that you could get so relaxed that even the next breath is too much work. So then you just don't bother to take the next breath and you just die. Yeah. I can give you several examples of that. Okay. Here you are up on a cross. Doesn't matter whether your arms are tied or whether there's nails. It doesn't matter any of that stuff. What matters is the fact that you're hanging there and the chest cannot because of the way that the arms are stretched out. Do this for yourself. Just to see how breathing is when your arms are stretched out like that. Just try it sometime. Isn't a little bit more work. Now imagine that you were hanging from your arms. And how are you going to be able to breathe? That in fact, that's what happened. That thought will come like this next breath is just too much work. And then a few seconds later, oh, no, it's not. I can take one more and you'll take one more breath. And then a couple of minutes later, I can't take another one. I just can't do it. Okay, so this is, so the question is, can you go out happily knowing that your next breath may be too much work? Another example is that you're very, very old, laying in the hospital, you've got pneumonia. And your lungs are full, not necessarily completely full, but have mucus and whatnot in there and they the doctors at this particular point in medical history and time they just give you morphine to ease your pain there you are laying but the morphine that eases your pain also relaxes the muscles and now you can't breathe the muscles won't work but at least the doctors have made it convenient for you so it doesn't feel so bad but that doesn't stop you from knowing that you can't breathe and you're about to die. Okay, so there's many examples of that. Underwater, getting drowned. How about getting choked? Where you can't breathe. As much as you gasp, somebody's choking you to death. You can't breathe. When do you want to stop trying to breathe? When do you want to stop the struggle? Maybe if you stop the struggle really, really soon, the guy thinks you're dead, he takes his hands off of you, and now you can breathe. But so long as you're struggling for that next breath and you can't have it, he's going to know you ain't dead yet because you're still struggling. So there's many, many things about this that we can begin to think about if we're willing to look at the fact that we're going to die. And you can make some choices about that. But the most important issue is that you've got choices about how you feel about death. You don't have to do it by instinct alone. You can do it with wisdom.
Any comments? Yes, Andrew. Yeah, I just want to share. I think it, this is really funny. Um, this is, I don't know, just an interesting bit of synchronicity where like I, I didn't know that I was hopping into a group call here. And as I was sitting uh, doing some practicing before that, I was like, you know, I think I think I want to ask Damarado if we can talk about fear today. <laughs> I didn't even need to ask. <laughs> yes. Well, um, when when we talk about fear, and want to make it grandiose, then we would say afraid to death. In other words, how fearful can you get? Because if you get fearful enough, if you become afraid enough, if you stop down enough, that actually is a form of suicide. Don't think that it's happened yet. Maybe occasionally, certainly not often. But that whole idea of the fear is a freeze mechanism. And that we freeze, we stop. Um, you can see how that happened um, uh, instinctually. Uh, several of us are out in the, um, the jungle and we spot a rhino. Everybody freezes. Right? Why? because we know that rhinos don't have good eyesight, but they can detect motion. And if we just stand there, they can't see us. That's actually true everywhere. That uh, uh, the, the eyes, in fact, are most likely to detect motion. And knowing that, we freeze, we stop. We stop breathing, we stop moving, we just freeze. Okay, how long can you stand in that frozen state? Well, it depends upon how long the fear lasts. And so that would be one of the ways that people could stop breathing would be also afraid. So afraid that they can't even breathe. That's how dangerous fear is. But it is also our friend and protector. You could not have survived up until now without fear. So the whole issue is, is that can we manage it to the point that we have only uh, true positives and not have so many false positives? We begin to recognize what really is worth being afraid of and what is not. And stop being afraid of things like pieces of paper or insults and that kind of stuff because you can't touch me. <laughs> I, I have a question on that on the pieces of paper. I've been in, uh, you know, lawsuits and definitely, you know, those pieces of paper, you know, behind them are real, <laughs> real threats. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's not just a piece of paper, it's a legitimate. Someone is after you. <laughs> yes, that's that's true, except that when they give you that piece of paper, they want you to be afraid. That's the culture. Mm -hmm. And so they put on that piece of paper things that make you afraid because that would make them afraid. Sure, sure. Right. OK, but so definitely a strategy. Yes. Yeah, so that's just a strategy that you don't have to buy into. They want to control your feelings. People, not just with uh, lawsuits and pieces of paper and threatening like that, 
That's what Reddit is all about. Everything about Reddit is to try to make other people afraid and make and be able to control them through their fear. How else can we control other people if we can't control them through fear? Greed, but there's not much greed. I mean, they try to put greed on Reddit by having uh, coins and things like this. I don't think that they're very common because the easy thing to do is to attack. But those attacks can't hurt you. That in fact, even in lawsuits, it's only the threat. Very, very few people die over a lawsuit. Well, that brings up another thing. I mean, I I know I brought up death initially, but to me, death is not as scary as being other things that could happen before you die i mean to me death would be like okay that that's not too bad but you know i've I've been in lawsuits with the u.s federal government that's scary and that's somewhat painful too so that's because they want you to be afraid and so you buy into it right You, you buy their fear they're selling you their fear they want you to feel that way and so they'll do things to manipulate you and they know how to manipulate you. But I'm teaching you that you don't have to be manipulated by your fear. You can use wisdom instead. And what would be the strategy to, you know, to get that wisdom, I guess? Well, for number one is to recognize that, that you're safe right now. Get yourself into a state of feeling safe. And once you do feel safe, then you can deal with those papers in that lawsuit wisely. But if you deal with it out of fear, then you are being manipulated into fear and probably will make the mistake that they want you to make. So one of the most important qualities of wisdom is is that we're really willing to look at how things are because we're not really afraid of it. That in fact, the worst thing that can happen in that lawsuit is getting killed. Right? Well, that's not going to happen. So what can they do to you? Take all your money? You can still have a hamburger or two a day. I mean, how much money can they take? (laughs) I I love this idea of practicing not being afraid like it's it's so simple and so radical at the same time like I came into this conversation like with some just feeling some anxiety like I don't even know what about and like as as you've been talking I've just been sitting here like kind of repeating to myself like I'm safe in this moment like I'm safe and it's like it's it's I mean it's both like obvious and amazing that it's like oh yeah like that works like I feel slightly calmer than I did before Absolutely. Just talking about it and we feel better. Everybody just talking about all of this and we begin to feel better. Yeah, we can relax. We don't have to go around being afraid all the time. But in fact, the um, the society is structured that way. That you want people to be afraid. Now, when I say you want people to be afraid, let us say that there are those who are afraid and they want to control other people through fear. And so they want to make those people afraid 
so that they can be controlled. They can control you from with your fear. An example of that is uh, they want you to vote a particular way, and so they make you feel like the other team over there is evil. They're dangerous. They're bad. And you can be afraid of the Democrats, or you can be afraid of the Bushes, or you can be afraid of the Republicans, or you can be afraid of that other church over there. So the Protestants are afraid of the Catholics, and the Catholics are afraid of the Protestants. And that fear is what separates us. And in fact, if you're afraid of someone, it's really hard to be friends with them. And so our whole society is operating through this issue of fear. You need, in other words, they want to keep you afraid so that you can keep longing for something to come out of your fear. And so you go and you buy cars to come out of your fear. You go and take jobs so you can come out of your fear. You go and buy clothing to come out of your fear. Some women buy makeup to come out of their fear. Is, is, would you say that like greed or desire is inherently tied to fear or does it have its own separate existence well, as well? At one time, I was understanding that greed is one kind of feeling and ill will is another kind of feeling. But the real way of looking at it is, is that they are the same thing. You could go so far as to call it two sides of the same coin. Mm. All right. So if you really, really, really want something, then that also means that you are dissatisfied without it and you're afraid that you don't get it. Once you have it, then you will become afraid to lose it. An example of that is people who are really, really wealthy. They are afraid to be poor. And so they uh, and the reason that they're afraid to be poor is because they couldn't survive poor. And so, in fact, our whole society is wanting more and more and more and more wealth because being really, really poor is dangerous. It's suicidal, in fact. Okay, so we gain money to protect ourselves. But if you get a lot of money, now you have to protect the money, too. So basically, wealthy people have two problems. They have two kinds of fear. Fear of the loss of the self and also the fear of the protection mechanism, which is the fear of the loss of the money. Because if I lose my money, then I'll be afraid again for myself. And so we wind up being afraid on two counts. We add to the fear through our greed, rather than thinking that greed and ill will are opposites, they in fact are the same thing that wanting to get rid of something is the same thing as uh, uh, hating it or wanting to draw something near you means that you hate that it's distant. Isn't that interesting? Greed and hatred are actually the same thing. And we want to choose one over the other without recognizing that you always get both of them at the same time. And then there's the additional issue of that perhaps you can't even tell the difference between whether you like it or you hate it. You don't know. And so now we become confused. I'm not sure. I don't know whether I like it or I hate it. 
For in fact, liking and hating are the very same thing anyway, so it doesn't matter whether you like it or you hate it, and that's real wisdom. Real wisdom is, is that my liking and my hating have nothing to do with the reality of the situation. It only has to do with my own fears. So what what is the mind, the mind that's free of greed and ill will and fear? What what is that mind acting out of then? What, 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 else? what is that mind doing? I didn't what, catch what, your question. When you like when a like you, you know, like when you're free of ill will and afflictive mind states, you still, you know, move through the world and you still do things like what what is motivating your actions at that point? What else is there when when the defilements are gone? Joy, curiosity interest um uh friendship we do things for friends we answer questions we hang out a lot whole bunch of nothing to do when you think of something you do and say well i don't have to do that right now or, oh i'll wait until next week maybe something will change and then i'll do it because you see, we don't have, uh, there's no re reason to feel like anything is imminent. But some things are timely. An mm. example of that would be the wisdom would be that if there are, uh, the, the visas have to be done on a certain day, let's get the paperwork for the visa, go to the visa office and get the job done. It would be stupid and dangerous for me to not go to the visa office and just ignore them. I've seen people do that in Thailand. And the police have a, uh, have a technique. They already know where you are and they start tracking them. And those people who don't um, abide by the visa laws after a year or two or three, the things are really, really piling up. Then the police will go pick them up and say, hey, man, you've been out for two years now. That means you owe us a whole lot of money. <laughs> and so when people don't get their visas done in Thailand, that's just an investment bank for the, for the cops. <laughs> they want the bribes. <laughs> so you got to go do the visa. But that's about the only thing that there is, is just to do the visas. And so we do the visas and you do them happily and don't have any trouble. But most people, they really hate the visa office. Have to stand in long lines and all that kind of stuff. And so we don't want to do it. We feel bad, but we do because we're afraid rather than doing it happily. So yeah, you can do things happily because they need to be done. Just like your next breath, you can do that happily because you know it needs to be done. So think about the visas, the same thing as taking the next breath or going to the bank. Some things just have to be done. Let's go do it happily. The things that don't have to be done at all, hmm, why bother? The answer is, well, it may be fun. Oh, well, if it's fun, then let's go play. So what do you think, Andrew? Like it. <laughs> you see, we have been told in our society literally about the age of six. When we start to school, 
all of the real joy of life has to be postponed until after the work is done. Mm-hmm. And yet the way that we live our lives, we just keep piling on more and more and more work and we never get a chance to just relax. But in fact, one of the things that we can say is, is that this whole mentality that has um, gotten so strong in the Western culture, let us say in the past 300 years for sure, but in the past 100 years has gone almost on steroids. And, uh, and that is, we can phrase it up into the one statement, if you don't work, you don't eat. Have you ever heard that before? Everybody's heard that. Okay, but in fact, most people think that it's somewhat are completely true. That if you don't work, you don't eat. And yet the COVID uh, lockdowns and all of that prevented a lot of people from working. And I don't think that there has been a mass outbreak of starvation. There was some food shortages, but a food shortage is not the same thing as mass starvation. And now starting in August, even though things are kind of getting back to normal, many, many millions of people have reassessed their lives. And they're recognizing maybe I don't have to work so hard. Maybe I can find an easier life. And there's also uh, a group of excuses that are being used, but excuses are just excuses. One of the excuses is, oh, I don't have daycare for my child. Well, before COVID, you didn't have daycare for your child and you worked anyway. Now that you recognize that there's a problem. Okay. And so there's a, there's a lot of different issues. And that um, one of them is about salary. People are saying, oh, well, I can't make any money off of that job. Yes, but before COVID, you couldn't make any money off of that job and you did it anyway. What's changed? What's changed is this idea that people recognize that they don't have to follow that rule of you don't work, you don't eat, because it's not true. It's certainly not true here in Thailand, because people have families and they support each other. And so mostly work in Thailand is seasonal anyway. But in America, it's supposed to be all the time, all the time, all the time, all the time. Well, I just found out that in August, about 4.2 million people quit their jobs who were already employed. But then in September, 4.4 million people quit their jobs, even more. So in the past couple of months, uh, a good maybe 5% of the entire workforce in the United States has just quit. And all I have to say about that is, yeah, wake up, wakey, wakey, folks, wake up. <laughs> <laughs> that, in fact, if there is a shortage of labor, that means then that the work, that jobs that aren't good or are there will be good jobs. And those jobs that are uh, not worth having, people are not going to take those jobs. You know, in the 1950s, very, very few women worked in the United States. Most moms stayed home. But by having the all of the people work, that meant that the, whatever work that needed to be done, we got twice as many people to do it. That means that we can force them to work for less wages. 
And so the wages have been going down and down and down in the sense of inflation going up and the, the salary staying the same. Well, there's people are waking up now. I find that, I find that quite amusing. I like that. I like that people are quitting their jobs in droves. Uh, each individual one taking their own power back and living their lives uh, more, uh, let us say, wisely, rather than uh, being trapped in that fear of if you don't work, you don't eat, and if you don't eat, you die. Right? You don't work, you don't eat. Well, that's the whole point back to fear of death. If you're not afraid of death, then you're not a fear of starving to death. You'll eat and you'll eat and you'll eat happily. But if you're afraid, then you probably will get sick just from the fear itself. So wisdom actually is the process of waking up and checking the facts and recognizing that there is really nothing much to be afraid of. And because there's nothing much to be afraid of, why should we have so much fear? We can be much more successful in our lives by playing our way through it rather than doing things to avoid danger. <laughs> so, Christopher, do you have any comments? No, no, that was very helpful. Thank you. Ah, Jeff, what do you have to say? Well, uh, I guess, as you know, I'm pretty well acquainted with fear. I've, we've had discussions in the past about that. And it uh, this is very helpful because it tells me that uh, being so acquainted with it is actually quite a gift. And it is allowing to allowing me to prepare myself for, you know, my final moments. But if mm -hmm. I can, if I can conquer fear now, and when death comes, it's it's going to be okay, which is an yeah. amazing thing. Absolutely. Um, if here's one of the ways of thinking about it: plan on having a happy death. Plan on having a happy death. We may not be able to control where it is or when it is. We may not be able to control who's there. But if we um, plan in advance, we might, in fact, have a great big going out party. I, I have been to such an occasion. Only once in my life, her name was Jean. This happened in 1999, and she was an old girlfriend from the 1970s. And that she had picked up, I think, in India, she had picked up hepatitis. And that they, in her last days, they were giving her transfusions over and over again. But the transfusion blood that they were giving her were making her ill on its own account, as well as the other stuff. And so between the hospital and the insurance company, they decided to take her off of uh, uh, the transfusions that she was given. So what does she do? She has a party. She has her own funeral party. And it happened on Saturday afternoon. It was a beer and pizza and guitar and new AG. And it was just really, really marvelous. She had about 60 people there. 
she was actually working in um uh, uh she was a, a social worker uh occupational therapist and and where she worked was in a um a prison uh in california and so many of the people that she worked for or worked with in that prison came to her funeral as well as um uh much of the hospital staff of the hospital so there was like 60 or so people at that funeral this happened on saturday afternoon and she died on tuesday so that was well planned a well-timed going away present and i mean it was just one of the most beautiful things that i had seen every i mean she got so much love and affection um, at that so the if you plan it well you can have a going out party like that also Up to you. But we have to come to the point of being afraid of death. In fact, that's one of the things that I was able to help her with is to get ready for the, the inevitable. It's going to happen. Why don't you have a party? <laughs> so we can do it, Jeff. We can come out. We can plan uh to have a very joyful death if we can plan on and know that we can have a joyful death the only way that we can do that by planning is by planning or practicing being joyful before we're dead because it's going to be really hard to master uh, to muster up a whole bunch of joyfulness for for death when we don't have any joyfulness going into it so it's better to let's have that joy now let's get a very joyful happy fearless life and if we're completely fearless then we can have a joyful uh life having uh one toy after another and when death comes that's just another toy to play with can i take <laughs> one more breath can i get one more <laughs> is this the last one <laughs> It may be the last thing to say is, hey, folks, I'm out of here. I've had about as much joy as I can stand. <laughs> so, Keisha, welcome back. Glad to see you. Thanks. Is that your funeral shroud? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hopefully it'll keep me warm down there. <laughs> <laughs> speaking of that that's one thing that i can say is is that in the the robes of the of the monks doesn't matter what size they are when you go to the store here in tainan to buy the robes you can get them anywhere from a, like about 160 meters up to about 220 centimeters so um even for the child's robes as well as the largest of the big robes, they all have exactly the same patterns. Now this is historical and the patterns come from uh, a time when the Buddha and Ananda were sitting on the side of a hill, a mountain, looking out over the, um, uh, uh, the farms below. And it was in such a shape and Ananda made the suggestion why don't we all cut our robes exactly the way that it set out right here? And there was one of the things that were there was squares 
rectangles, farm areas, roads, and that kind of stuff. Well, there is one of the uh, places on the, the road that has a very, very long, narrow strip. And that long, narrow strip uh, historically comes from funeral uh, uh, wrappings, you know, mummies. They, they have the cloth and they have a thin strip about that way. And they wrap it and wrap it. And they did it in Egypt. They did it in Greece. They did it for Jesus. They did it in any, I don't know why. That whole idea of taking thin strips of cloth to wrap the body in. But uh, that's how they had. So, so that's what they would want to do is to get some of that cloth that was long enough so that you didn't have to have a sewing place in it that would be there for the whole uh, robe. So charnel grounds were still very common places for the monks to go visit, and, but they didn't stay there anymore the way that they did in the early days. But they did go there to take some rags from time to time. And so the robe itself reflects uh, this charnel ground and uh, death itself is part of the robe that, that the monks wear. And they, I think all of them know that story <laughs> so that they remember that that one stripe there, that's, that, that's the charnel ground that indicates that, hey, we're all going to die. Everybody's going to die. And that's a good thing. As much as each individual one wants to last forever, the civilization, I mean, I'm really glad that Moses and Jesus are not still here. <laughs> Let them, I mean, and Julius Caesar, and how about Constantine? Boy, I'm really glad those guys are dead. <laughs> <laughs> and someday somebody will be really glad that I'm dead too. And so I'll give somebody some joy. <laughs> <laughs> I think most of those people will be Thai. A lot of Thai people would be very happy I'm dead. <laughs> So that they can have a great big ceremony and funeral and all of that. So this is a whole different attitude about death as we're talking. I mean, most of us are trying to be afraid of it and trying to avoid it and whatnot like that. Where in fact, if we bring it up and talk about it and joke about it, we can get really comfortable. No problem. Yeah, we're all going to die. So, Keyshawn, you got anything to say? Uh, not really. I was thinking about what uh, I think Christopher said earlier about um, how he's not afraid of death, but he's afraid of, like, a lawsuit. Um, and I was, just th I was just thinking that that's an interesting concept. Because, yeah, know, well, I I kind of think that I know the kind of house that Christopher was raised in, uh, where they keep um, uh, court suits in the closet instead of theirs, keep them under the bed rather than gorillas. <laughs> <laughs> Terrifies a child, these papers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, when we recognize it. The course, it doesn't matter. You're going to survive. 
Well, I, I mean, I, I have survived lawsuits, and I, and I, I mean, I have no fear right now. Mm-hmm. But when, when, but I, you know, if if uh, I got a knock on the door and a box was delivered, which is what happened to me in the past, and it, you know, it's like a fifteen-pound box of papers is delivered. I mean, that that's a gut wrencher right there. <laughs> I mean, it was at the time. I don't think I slept for about two weeks after that. So, you know, again, I'm fine now, but if, and I, I'm, that type of situation is not going to happen again. But so if something similar happened in maybe a different realm or whatever, I'd want to be able to, you know, if there's a way to do that and not have that gut wrenching feeling, I'd love to, I'd love to uh, have that, you know, because it was visceral, it was real, and I, I, there was no thinking about it, it just happened. Excellent question. Excellent. Because there's a, uh, the Buddha has a, uh, a, a point about that. Now that you have had that gut-wrenching um, uh, issue because of paperwork and court suits and all of that, the next time that it happens, instead of going through gut-wrenching, you can say, wait a minute, I did fine with all the gut-wrenching that I did. I'll be fine this time, and I don't have to wrench any guts. <laughs> I don't have to do that. I've been there, done that. I've already done that, and it didn't help. Gut-wrenching didn't help the lawsuit. Gut-wrenching is optional. Lawsuits sometimes need to be taken care of, but gut-wrenching over lawsuits, that's optional. And now you can understand that. So the next time, if it happens, or whenever something gut-wrenching happens, you can say, hey, I've had gut-wrenched before. I don't need to do that this time. Gut-wrenching is optional. Been there, done that. That's very, very handy. You've been insulted before. So the next time that you're insulted, well, and you're done that. I survived that insult. I can survive this one. So so actually, um, I guess that kind of leads into what I was thinking about what he had said, which is that like when you do encounter the the guy at the door with the, the lawyer with the papers at the door and you have the thought like what's going to happen to me? Well, isn't that kind of a thought about your death, your survival. Am I going to survive this? What's going to happen to, to my life? Like you're, that's kind of a, a fear of death underlying um, being served the papers, right? And then so you said I've been insulted before. So the insult, if you know, am I going to survive this criticism? Probably is under like the survival is is underlying it, and so it, it maybe it all wraps around that fear of death at the end of the day. Absolutely. Good. I'm glad you put that together, Keyshawn. That's the whole point. There is no fear worth having other than the fear of death. So any and everything that we have ever become afraid of, the ultimate end of it or the depth of it is, is that I won't survive. I won't survive that lawsuit. I won't survive that piece of paper. I won't survive that insult. This is the underlying instincts. Because that's the only way that the self-preservation instinct knows how to behave is everything is terrorizing. But that's a very, very simple mechanism within, and we can use our uh, our noggins, we can use our wisdom and talk ourselves out of that. Hey, I do not have to go down that particular uh, uh, instinctual rabbit hole. 
I can wisely talk myself out of it. And one of the things I can say is I've been there, done that. It's interesting, too, because I think that um, Christopher had also said, you know, when I think about death, I can think that's not a big deal. And then, you know, but that thought in itself is more is a more wholesome thought than the thought of, am I going to survive this subpoena? Mm-hmm. So actually, that's why, you know, probably in saying that you probably have a better feeling around death than you do around the subpoena, even though the subpoena is about death. Well, when you say death, I mean, yeah. are, are you talking about like, I would think of it as more of like death of the way life you have it now, <laughs> you know, versus how it might be in the future. So, you know, if you have a, let's say you have a $12 million lawsuit or something, you know, something to that effect. I mean, that that can literally change your life from, you know, the way you're living now to some other life that that, you know, could be completely different. So if you're saying death, I mean, I'm not thinking death like, you know, because I do look at death when I'm dead, I'm dead or whatever. (laughs) It doesn't make a difference. Mm -hmm. But while I'm alive, I have kids to worry about. I have, you know, uh, a wife to worry about. I have family to take care of. So, yeah, I mean if there's a huge change, all those things are going to change. And so if that's what you mean by death, well, sure. But I mean, I'm not, when I think of death, death, I'm not really that worried about that. I'm more worried about what's going to happen while I'm alive. Okay. Uh, It's very interesting that you said that you had family and that you had kids, but that the only thing that you could do with them would be to worry. Rather than well, recognize your family to change in their and change of what you know their entire life would change. I mean, again, these, these things are 15, 20 years ago, so it's not a big deal. I just uh-huh. I'm thinking of possibilities, you know, of, of things that could happen. You know, anything that could happen, I would like to deal with it differently than the way I dealt with it before. So that's what I'm getting at. I- I, I understand completely. This is why there is an issue of the middle path. In other words, now that you look back on it, before you were going into it not knowing what was going on, but now you look back on it from, uh, from the vantage point of having seen that the lawsuit was the lawsuit, but the terror of that lawsuit was optional. That you did not have to be afraid that, in fact, your fear may have made things even more difficult with the lawsuit than if you had just merely done it as, oh, this is another toy to play with. I can handle this. There's nothing to this. It's generally when we become afraid and our fear and survival is so important that we'll actually do something like break the law or to harm someone out of our fear. Where, in fact, if you go about it fearlessly, or let us say, feeling of security and safely, if you do it safely, then the likelihood of us doing something that really harms someone is much less. That we often harm people out of our own fear or wanting to retaliate or whatever like this. But if we're feeling good about the lawsuit, then you can handle that lawsuit easily 
probably more wisely, probably make a better choice of lawyers. I, I did the big no-no. I represented myself, but I did okay. <laughs> well, now, that's the whole point. You said, but I did okay, ha-ha. And I'm saying, <laughs> take that to the next lawsuit. Right, right. Well, I, no, I don't want any more lawsuits. But you <laughs> the next issue, you, I know that, and you can want, you can do things wisely to avoid it, but yeah. you cannot guarantee what's going to happen. And it may not be exactly a lawsuit, but it may be some other situation that you wind up having to manage, and you can walk into that situation with, "Aha, I've done that before, and I come out of it okay. I can handle this and come out of it okay." Right. I will survive this visa office visit is the way of thinking of it because that's really funny. <laughs> but I'll survive. I'll get out of this alive or I'll, I'll get out of it dead or alive. <laughs> and so um, that gives us a different. Actually, we could say it as a new kind of freedom. To wisely go where we were originally afraid to look and afraid to go. That now we can go and do things wisely because we're not afraid and the fear doesn't stop us. But let's make sure that what we do do, we do with our eyes open, looking at what we're doing, rather than doing it blindly and stupidly. And almost always when we do things blindly and stupidly, we do it because we're afraid. But when we're not afraid, then we will look. An example of that is the new medical doctor or the uh, student walks into that autopsy and he is not afraid. Because he's not afraid, he will actually be the best student in the class because he's really interested and curious to where many of the other students are afraid in that autopsy. And because of that, they're not paying good attention. They don't want to see it where Mel Brooks, the doctor, pulls that heart out and says, see this, it pumps. <laughs> and about half the students will keel over. <laughs> and, and so this is the best. The point is just to begin to make a joke of everything because it's really not that dangerous. You survived up to this point. You'll survive into the future. And when you die, you already got that one wired. <laughs> already got that you already said i'm not afraid of death well if you're not afraid of death you don't have to be afraid of anything you you've already handled 12 million dollar lawsuits the next one piece of cake if it ever happens and so this is the attitude that we're beginning to uh to develop the attitude of the lion the attitude of they can't touch me their slings and arrows of outrageous fortune just can't touch me. Insults can't touch me. That in fact, the insults that 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 happen, you could say that um, that we if if they did touch us, if we did feel insulted, then we would want revenge. Except that revenge. It's well known that there's there's actually two cliches. One is, is that revenge is a dish best served cold. 
which means don't try to do something hot. Wait for a few months, because if you're cool, maybe you won't have to have revenge. So revenge is best left served cold, because that means that it may not be revenge so much. The other one, which is even more superior, would be um, that uh, the best revenge is a life well lived. In other words, he couldn't touch me. I live my life well, no matter what he said or what he did to me. But not only did I survive, but I survived well. So they can't touch me. So there's no reason for us to be afraid of being insulted or attacked or anything because we're going to be okay. But we have to keep talking ourselves into it. The reason for that is because that instinct keeps coming back with these false positives. That's its mechanism. It's supposed to protect you from danger. But now we're going to use our wisdom to decide what's dangerous or not, not the primitive instinct. But we have to wake up to recognize, hey, I can I can feel the way I want to feel. I don't have to deal with it through fear. I can deal with it through wisdom instead. Yes, Andrew. Oh. Um, so, uh, so you have, we're practicing Anapanasati, and we get a little taste of the mind without fear. What what stops that from becoming another thing to want? If you see it. Well, if you, if you want it, that means that you're in a state of not liking the fear that you're in. Mm. Okay. And so the reason that you're in the state of fear is because you've talked yourself into it and now you want out of it. And so you're talking about it in that sense. So both of those uh, sides of it are unwholesome. Okay. The unwholesome that got you into the state of anxiety or fear and then wanting out of it. Both of those things are unwholesome. The, the, the right way to handle the, uh, the agitation or the anxiety or the stress or the fear would be by saying, aha, I see that. I see you. Let me see if I can play with you too as a new toy. And so we start breathing deeply. We start looking for the anxiety inside. But guess what? While we're doing it at that level of investigation, we're not having the thoughts that gave us that anxiety. Mm -hmm. But if you're trying to get rid of that anxiety, then you don't like it. And so you're having the kind of thoughts that keep the anxiety going. You could really work yourself up into a grand state of anxiety simply by trying to get rid of anxiety. Or you can use it as a toy. Aha, I see that. And not only that, but if you're sharp and can reflect back a couple of seconds or so, you can recognize what thought it was that you had that caused you to feel this anxiety. It's almost like a one-two punch. You have the thought and then the feeling. Once the feeling is there, where was the thought that brought that on? Because if you can change the way that you thought and said, oh, that's okay, I see that anxiety. Let me just relax and be okay. Then that kind of thought's not going to be there to keep triggering that anxiety. This is what we mean by a wholesome thought versus an unwholesome thought. We want to change the mind out of the unwholesome thoughts that bring on fears and anxieties into the kind of thoughts that bring on comfort and relaxation. 
Why do you want to look back a couple of seconds at the at the thought though? If... Well, two and this in this world, two seconds is a long time. Right. I, I would say looking back about a couple of tenths of a second, just immediately in the past, what was in the mind? But why why do you want to see what was in the mind? It just to uh well, to guarantee yourself that, oh, that kind of thought is what causes anxiety. Let's make sure that we're not dwelling on and having that kind of thought over and over and over again. Let's stop doing that. So let's take a look at what's going on so that we can make a change. Okay. Because if we don't make that change by noticing it with wisdom, we're just bound to continue having that kind of thought, giving ourselves more uh, anxiety. And so changing that kind of thought from an unwholesome thought that brings on anxiety, including the kind of unwholesome thoughts of I don't like this anxiety and I want to get rid of it. And to, oh, I see you. Yeah, there you are again. I'm going to make sure that my thoughts are really comfortable and happy and wholesome now. And let that anxiety melt away. And when we dwell on something over and over again, we get in our, ourselves into a pit. Let us say that some big accident happened, like during the lawsuit. That while that lawsuit is going on, I imagine that you spent far more hours thinking about that lawsuit than you actually spent while you're in court. Tons well, yeah, and tons I, I, and tons, I, I, over I, and over and over again. We oh, think yeah. about it this way and we think about it that way, making ourselves uncomfortable while we're thinking. 20 about hours a day. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. So now we can say, oh, I don't have to think. I'm not solving that lawsuit. I'm just ruminating over it. So let me stop thinking about the lawsuit and I can think about being happy and content. Now, put that lawsuit way over there. Seclude yourself from that lawsuit. Don't think about that lawsuit. If you think about the lawsuit, you know you'll feel bad. That's just one example of the kinds of things that we can think about that make us feel bad. How about mother-in-law coming for a visit? Before she gets here, I'm already upset. Hello, Robert. Hi, guys. I'm just, oh, uh, haircut. Yep, haircut. You know the reason. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, yeah, no. I'm just right dying now. to find out why. <laughs> <laughs> having a great, having a great time. That's all I gotta say. Actually, yeah, yeah. You joined. Joined a bit late. We're almost ready to finish up. Unless any got anybody got anything they want to talk about? Jeff, Chris, anything left? Um, how about um, how to break up a dog fight? <laughs> Do not. Break up a dog fight. Hmm. Do not do it. Hmm. I'll show what you the little one? wounds to prove that it's not a good idea. Hoses are good. Hoses yeah. with water. 
But what if one is much larger than the other one, and you think he could kill him? Well, that's unlikely to happen, even in nature. Dogs don't kill each other. It's all a matter of dominance. And when the, when the dog that's losing is on his back, it's almost always over at that point in time. The only time that a dog could possibly get killed is when he refuses to give in. The hollow to whimper. Hmm. If a dog goes womp, 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 like that, then the fight's already over. Huh. Okay. And what <laughs> if the dog gets injured? Like, how should you, you know, like, like I wouldn't, like, uh, so if my dog got in a fight with a much bigger dog, like, I would want to protect him, you know? I feel it'd be very difficult to not want to protect him, you know? Mm-hmm. I know. But you could lose you could lose skin and hair over that. Right. Instead of just taking the dog to the vet, you could spend more time in the hospital than in the vet's office. So be careful. I learned by the way, I'm I'm giving you information that I learned as a teenager. Because <laughs> I've been around dog fights back in the nineteen fifties. And you wow. don't you do not try to interfere with a dog fight. Like Chris said, if you've got a water hose, then spraying water on the dogs will get them thinking about the water being sprayed on them rather than thinking about each other. But if you go up there trying to kick one of them, or if you try to pick up your dog in order to protect your dog from that other dog, that other dog's going to attack you. Right. So, so to give you more information, so, um, so I have my dog, who you know, right, Rocky. So my girlfriend's dog is this big Vishla, big brown Vishla, and they get along pretty well most of the time. But he, the Vishla really doesn't like being barked at, and Rocky can bark sometimes. So my girlfriend, well, bar- been- Rocky will learn. Let dogs do what dogs do. This is not your job. This mm. is none of your business. Your business would be to protect Rocky when you can't protect him, but once the dogs go after each other, you need to stay out of it. Unless you can operate it from a distance, like spraying water on them, but you do not want to go within three feet of those dogs while they're doing their thing with each other. But when Rocky finally turns himself over and exposes his belly or whimpers and that kind of stuff, then the fight is over. Sure. So our solution has been that her dog, Bowie, wears a mask and and the mask stops him from biting, but he really doesn't like the mask. And then we have to watch them a lot of the time, you know, if he's not wearing the mask um, and then step in. But you think we shouldn't step in. We should just allow it to or do the mask. You think we should just allow it to unfold. So long as the humans are in there trying to interfere the dogs will not be able to settle it on their own. And so you will actually. Um, yes, please. Cheese. And um, uh, we're good on everything else. Thank you. Sorry, just picking up a pizza. <laughs> um, anyway, you were saying. I was saying that so long as the humans are trying to keep two pets from having at each other. Then their differences will never get solved. 
is a matter mm. of dominance and Rocky is not about to have that big dog come in and take over his territory. This is a territorial kind of issue, right? Right. Rocky's going to have to give in to this, the fact that this big dog is going to be there and, he's, and that big dog is going to run the show and that's okay. Right. It used to be okay with Rocky, but Rocky is not going to learn that lesson from you. He's only going to learn that lesson from the bigger dog. Right. So that's a great teaching. My only concern is like, I feel like Rocky, he might just kill Rocky and, and that's, or seriously injure him, you know? No, that's not going to happen. I think that Rocky's too smart for that. <laughs> yeah, he might be. That this is an so. initial thing anyway. You're talking about the first couple of days that those two dogs have been around each other. They'll get used right. to each other. Right. The only thing to make sure then once they get settled in is to don't feed them or try to make them eat out of the same bowl or you'll continue the problem. That you feed them at right. the we same time, that, but you feel but you feed one in one room and one in another. Right. That's what we've been doing. And it's been going really well. Okay, um, well. Which is good. You did. Yeah. <laughs> well, if it hasn't been going very well, you'd have mentioned that they were fighting. <laughs> yeah, well, well, they did actually get pretty close, like, a few times. Mm -hmm. And um, and they started to fight. And then I stepped in um, one time, and she stepped in the other time. And so that's why we're kind of worried about it. Because Rocky just loves to bark and all this. Um and so it's kind of, and he really doesn't like being barked at, but he is the alpha. Like, you know, like what I've been doing is like when Rocky starts barking at him, I pick him up. I say no, like really intensely. And then I put him in my room. And then when he does it again, I do the same thing and I isolate him. And it's, it's, it's having a big effect. It actually is uh, teaching him, it seems. But yeah, just that, that isolation and the giant no. That I would recommend because what you're doing is you're making the intervention before the brawl. Once the brawl starts, right. you can't, you'll have to wait for the one up, one down, where where Rocky winds up on his little back, whimpering. Right. Then the other dog has proved that he's in charge. They're not going to kill each other. Right. I don't think that Rocky is so stupid that he would get himself killed. <laughs> over who, right. who owns the house. Right, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. So her dog actually did this to her mom's dog. And the mom's dog was much smaller. Mom got in the way and the mom got injured. Um, so it didn't really get to resolve itself. Um, exactly. And so I don't know what dog, if that dog got injured or what. Um, but... Oh, that's yeah, right. This is a repeat. You're saying, hey, should I go do what uh, well, uh, 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 mother-in-law did? Should I go to the hospital? Robert has gone. <laughs> Does anybody have any comments about dogs? <laughs> do, you, do you recommend... Never mind. <laughs> I really like what you had to say earlier, though, about the uh, not worrying about like things about the 
I'll, I'll Hi there, I got knocked off. I'm driving, so. Go ahead, Keyshawn. Oh, I was saying, yeah, I just really appreciated what you said about not thinking about certain things like the lawsuit when you're not in the lawsuit or, um, you know, going to get the visa when you're not in the visa. Yes, that's, yes, that's exactly right. Uh, that overthinking about things is what we commonly do. Rather than just recognize we don't have to do all of that work. There's no reason for me to solve that lawsuit a hundred times before we go to court. Mm -hmm. Yep. Oh, yeah, because then you were like, you'll you'll survive that one like dead or alive or whatever. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, either way, it's okay. Yes, either way, it's okay. It can we can handle this. Uh, and we can handle it without worrying about friends or worrying about the kids or worrying about the wife or worrying about the, how desperate things or how bad things can get over the lawsuit. We can say, I can handle that. I can handle it wisely. And so then we don't have to spend so much time at it. I try to find examples that are, is in the lives of most people, and it seems like that one of them would be emails, that we often write an email 10 or 20 times before it's sent. And the best thing to do is, is that when we're not going to do the email, probably letting it sit for a day or two and go at a very, very deep unconscious level while we make sure that we keep our mind off of it and don't think about that email and don't worry about it. But, we're, but instead, we get our mind into a really, really good state. And then we'll be ready to do the email. Oh, I feel like I can do it now. And then we go and just do the email. And I didn't have to think about it 20 times or try to figure out exactly the right thing to say. Because if you're feeling well when you write it, then what you do write will be good enough. And if you're yep. unhappy and pissed off and in a hurry when you write that email, then the likelihood of that email is that it's not going to be up to the scratch that you'd like it to be up to. I, I think also you could maybe do what you advised me with my book is just one sentence. You know, because oftentimes, like, the, the obstacle of starting it is much worse than the actual writing. Like, once you start writing something, it just kind of comes together. Whereas if you, that worry, whereas if you have that big buildup, that's really where the dukkha is, not mm -hmm. the writing. Exactly. The dukkha is never in the job that we're doing. The dukkha is always optional. The dukkha is always mind-made. The task itself is not the dukkha. Even if the dukkha, or even if the task would be something really strenuous like digging a ditch. That if you are digging a ditch, you can like it. And if you're digging a ditch and you like it and then you stop liking it, then take a break and stop doing the ditch. Get yourself back to the point that you're okay with doing the ditch. Take a rest. 
get the body relaxed again, stop heaving, stop with your hurting muscles. But most of us will, in fact, even though we're already beyond our point of endurance, we see that, oh, I've got to get this ditch dug. And the ditch is more important, getting that ditch dug, than how I feel about it. So instead of taking three or four hours to dig the ditch and then we're satisfied for three or four hours, we'll spend only two hours doing the ditch and we hate the whole two hours. Oh, I'm going to think about that next time I have to fold laundry. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Just want, do I like this shovel full of dirt <laughs> or do I like this one piece of laundry? Or washing dishes, can I wash this dish? Can I enjoy washing this dish and put it over here? Can I wash, can I enjoy washing this dish and put it over? And can I enjoy washing this dish? No, I can't enjoy washing this dish. I'm out of here. <laughs> and I put my dish back down and I walk over and I watch TV or I go for a walk or whatever like that. And I come back later and I see those dishes. Says, wow, I can do those dishes now. And then I can pick up that dish rag and wash that dish one dish at a time. But we we in our society are so goal oriented that we will continue digging that ditch even while we're tired and exhausted. But when we become process oriented, the always the question is, am I liking what I'm doing right now? Because we're all far more productive than we need to be. In fact, I got a little story. It's about Gurdjieff. Have you ever heard of Gurdjieff? Opinski. Okay. I have. I love Gurdjieff. He's great. Yeah. Okay. So one of the things that Gurdjieff did when he had his institute in Paris was that he had a job that he had uh, uh, put together with a restauranteur in the town. And so there was a waitress job that had to be filled every day. But the people, the students at the institute, there wasn't one person who had the job, but in fact, whoever wanted to work today could take the job today. And it would be for seven or eight people and one person would work one day a week. And the money then was given to uh, uh, the people according to the work that they did. Which that kind of proved was that even rudimentary labor, whatever it is, one person can actually support eight, nine, ten people. It's only because we're so greedy that we think that all of the work that I do makes the money that I get, and that money is mine. And that kind of mentality, that selfishness, is what causes um, scarcity when we live in a land of abundance. We live in a really abundant world. There's plenty enough to go around for everybody. But one of the things that is going around is the lie of scarcity. Oh, you don't have enough because I've got it all and I got it all because I need it all. Because if I don't have it all, then I'll be afraid that I don't have it all. And so never mind about you. You don't get any because I need it all. And that mentality then is built into capitalism. And capitalism is very, very much afraid of, um, let us call it a social way of doing it. And in fact, I think the biggest problem with the word Socialism is the ism at the end of it. If we just called it social, then we could share. 
that is it's got great. a lot of yeah that we can just be social we can just take care of one another if we lived well, in a society where we were all sharing and enjoying each other then very few of us would really have a whole lot of work to do we could all just sort of take it easy this was actually amazing because when i was in laos um, you know, it's one of the 20 poorest countries in the world, and there are zero homeless. Zero. You know, they have no social safety net, they have no welfare, nothing of that. They just take care of each other. It was absolutely mm -hmm. beautiful to watch that. I, I love that, you know, and I, you know, that's an example for the rest of humanity, 100%. Mm -hmm. Well, I spent a lot zero of time homeless. with the Lao in America, and yes, that that's, it's very, very family-oriented. And in fact, one of the... Um, most surprising stories that I have out of the Lao community was is that I had I was friends with a young monk who had been raised in the United States and he spoke mostly English. He I mean, he was living in Texas his whole life, but he ordained as a monk to take care of his uncle, who is a monk. How many of you wow. would be willing to ordain as a monk just because you had a, a an uncle? who was ordained as a monk and wasn't in best of health and the family wanted you to ordain so that you could take care of him. That doesn't happen in our culture at all, never. But that's part of the Lao culture. I think that the Laos even have that one a little bit over the Thai, but the Thai is so much better than the uh, the Western. Very Everything is very capitalistic, very, very selfish oriented in the West rather than family and community oriented. This is a whole different mentality. And just been, and so I would like for you to think about the mentality of sharing, that you've got plenty enough. Each one of you is absolutely filthy rich. Got more than you need. There's nothing really scarce in anybody's life. And yet our society is built upon fear, scarcity. You don't have enough. You got to work. If you don't work, you don't eat. If you don't eat, you die. And um, that mentality uh, could be said that it grew up in the industrial revolution, but it's come big time in the 20th century. That Robert and I a few days ago were talking about postmodernism, the fact that the modern society is all greed all the time. But the postmodern society is destruction. Everybody's angry. Everybody's ticked off. We don't like the fact that the society that we built from the 1950s up until recently, the society that we built doesn't work. It doesn't cause uh, us to be feeling safe and secure and happy. The society itself works against that. But instead of uh, just dropping the society and stop caring about society, everybody is in fact blaming the society and wants to fix the society so that they can feel better, which is very similar to the Bodhisattva vow, may all beings be enlightened or another way of saying it is that I wish everybody would shut up so that I can have some peace and quiet. Hmm. Rather than recognizing that, hey, if I want some peace and quiet, all I have to do is take a hike. 
And that's the way that we can do it. And just take a hike from the society. We don't need it. And when I'm saying that, everybody gets the idea, oh, you mean permanently? I say, no, I'm talking about just right now. Just for a few minutes, just take a vacation, leave society. Become a complete recluse for the next 10 minutes. <laughs> Get ourselves into a really, really wonderful state. And then we can come back, and, but we don't have to come back to society. We can come back and play with society instead. Make it a joyful, pleasurable thing. But we can't do that until we already find our joyful, pleasurable life on the inside, away from this, uh, far from the maddening crowd. Get away from the crowd, become peaceful and quiet and happy. And then when you go back to the crowd, they're not so much maddening anymore. I don't get mad at them anymore. You, you learn to stop fearing the society and instead become friends with the society. Mm-hmm. Can't and fix society. society is still, yes, society can still be a source of dukkha, but that's only if you decide to let it be one. Mm-hmm. So let's check back in. Are you okay with this, Chris? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I always get a, a lot from every conversation I either have with you or listen to. So very, very helpful, and I'm very thankful. Excellent. All right. How about you, Jeff? That was great, Damarado. Thank you so much. Very helpful. Excellent. Great, great, great. Andrew, how about you? Great. Yeah, I mean, I got, got the, got the, uh, it's like a rounded go fish. I got the topic I wanted and I didn't even have to, didn't even have to ask. <laughs> <laughs> Keyshawn, how are you going there? Just happy to see everyone. Excellent. Well, Robert. We'll let it go. Yes. I'm glad you've joined finally. So we're going to finish this. We've been at it a couple of hours. Everything's okay. Everything's fine. No worries. Okay. No problem. Is no, this I got a lot out of this, and it was like a very short time for me. So I'm very glad I joined, and I'll definitely be there next week. Excellent. All right, guys. Well, we'll see you later. All right. See you soon. Very happy to see each one of you. Glad to see you. Bye. Okay, bye. Bye. Take care, everyone. Bye.